this week's episode of Faster Masters Rowing Radio. Grab a seat at the table as Masters Rowing coaches Marlene Royal and Rebecca Caro share their biggest secrets on how to unleash your hidden potential and plot a new course for real results on the water and off. Now, on to the show. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where today we're going to talk a little bit about rowing genealogy and also coxing masters, which, oh my goodness, that is such a big topic. Now, kicking off first, Marlene, I want to ask which of your ancestors rowed? Well, I had a few. Um, first, my family, the royal family, um, were part of the first family of Newfoundland. So some of them were Vikings who came over to the island of Newfoundland. And um, from Newfoundland, some of the royals migrated west to Ontario. And my great uncle Alfred Royal was a member of the Ottawa Rowing Club before World War II. And as far as I know, besides the Vikings, he was he was my closest relative that rode before I started rowing um, in Buffalo, New York. That is awesome. And and what a a first family. Like I didn't know they had things like that. Mm-hmm. And well, in, in Newfoundland, there's a book of there's a book of original names that is historically the first, the names of the first families that came to the island of Newfoundland. And for those who don't know Canadian history, Newfoundland was a separate country until after World War II. And Newfoundland only became a province of Canada after World War II. So interesting enough, every morning in St. John's in Newfoundland, um, they play the Newfoundland anthem (laughs) on the radio. A very, very sweet. So my ancestor is uh, a little older than yours. In my parents' house, which is a family house, they found in the attic an old oar. And it was one of those pencil oar designs. So they're very narrow. They called them coffin blades in the UK. And it actually has a little bit of tin wrapped around the tip, presumably Ooh. to preserve it. And it's it's a it's been painted, so you know it's an ornamental ore, and it commemorates my great grandfather William Douglas Carrow, W. D. Carrow, who, as an undergraduate at Cambridge University, won quite a few pair ore races, and it, the span covers I think three years. It records four separate races that he won with three different pairs partners, and he rode for something called the First Trinity Boat Club. Now, Trinity College was and is the largest college in the university. And nowadays, the boat club is called First and Third Trinity Boat Club. Presumably, there was a first, a second and a third. So I looked it up. The first boat club, this is very, very uh, British. um, I'm not going to add another pejorative adjective. You can work it out. But the first boat club was for people who had been to high school at Eton or Winchester. The second boat club 
I believe, was for people who went to minor public schools. And the third boat club was from the rest who went to grammar schools or had been educated at home or some such. So that was how they segregated the youngsters. Anyway, obviously, second boat club died out and first and third merged. So they're known as first and third or F-A-T, with fat, which is, again, <laughs> very funny. Um, but he, one of the races he won, I found out a little more about. It was one at a, um, a local to Cambridge small town called St. Neots, which still has its own rowing club and a regatta. And when my grandfather, his son died, my auntie was turning out his house as you do. And she found a solid silver medal with Ooh. hallmarks. And it says it was St. Neots amateur regatta from I think 1882. And it was for the winners of the ladies' plate competition, which was clearly a coxed four event. And obviously his, his name was, was in the winning crew. Um, and she gave it to me and she said, look, Becky, you're, you're the rower in the family. Why don't you put it on a ribbon and just wear it as a piece of jewellery? And so I have it and it's on a little ribbon. I, I'm not wearing it today. but um, So that's my little bit of my rowing genealogy until, until I came along. Wow, that that's amazing. And you know, when I when I started rowing, I started rowing in 1977. So it was quite early in North America for women's rowing. And um, when I started rowing in Buffalo, Westside Rowing Club at that time was the only rowing club in 1977. However, if you go back to the turn of the century, there were 11 rowing clubs in Buffalo, New York. And where we rode is the Black Rock Canal, which is divided from the Niagara River. The Niagara River is the border between New York mm -hmm. State and Ontario. And behind the behind the break wall is is the Black Rock Canal, and that that's where the rowing club trains underneath the Peace Bridge. But at the turn of the century, there were eleven rowing clubs in Buffalo. It was very it was just like Boathouse Row in Philadelphia. It was mm -hmm. very vibrant very competitive, a lot of competitions in St. Catharines, Ontario and Toronto. And of course, all of the professional racing with Hanlon that went on in, in Toronto in the late 1800s. But, um, you know, it was it was quite it was quite a rowing scene and different clubs for different professions. And, you know, one by one, either the clubs went under or some of them burned down and, you know, various clubs kept merging together. And, you know, Westside is still, you know, a very, very strong club and they have actually two boathouses there for the masters now they have the frank lloyd wright boathouse that was built just for the masters um because frank lloyd wright actually designed many houses in buffalo and they took the frank lloyd wright boathouse design and um put that in buffalo but when i started rowing my uncle who was alfred's brother still had his racing shirt and he gave me his rowing racing shirt from Ottawa Rowing Club from back, you know, in the late 1930s. So that was that was a very, very special thing as well. So I don't go around wearing it, but I have you it. can make an exception. We can sure. get you to dig it out and we can wear it on a special <laughs> like like April, I think, is the anniversary of Faster Masters Foundation. So maybe we should get you to dig it out then. I don't know. We'll find something right. I, I can dig up something. Don't worry. <laughs> so. Now, we're delighted to welcome our guest today to talk Coxing Masters, Kim DeGutis. Hey, Kim, welcome. How are you guys doing? We are so good. Yes. We're, 
we're always pleased to talk coxing because I'm the only person in this relationship who coxes. And when I cox, I have to sit on two inflatables because my sizable derriere doesn't really fit into the available space very comfortably. Um, and I'm usually doing it because it's an emergency. So you're a real coxswain. Tell us a bit about you and how the hell you got into this crazy sport. I, I accident, uh, really, but um, so my name is Kim DeGudis. I'm one of the coxswains at the Riverside Boat Club of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, this year, I'll be serving in the role as an assistant coach on the water, um, helping out. So my coxing abilities and in-boat coaching are going to transition to the launch. Now, Ooh. if you know anything about coxswains, we, we cox either in the launch or in the boat, and it's a really, usually a seamless transition. So hopefully it's going to work out well. Uh, presently attached to the men's side. Uh, we have 19 athletes uh, on the team this year, so it should be a, a really fun and good time. How did I get into coxing? Um, really quite by accident. I rode in college. I rode at a very small Division three liberal arts school in South Jersey. Uh, the school is so small, people in New Jersey haven't even heard of it. Um, it's now called Stockton University. They do have a rowing program, but it is quite small. Um, mostly grass, grassroots fed and funded, um, learned to row there, took a few years off. That's usually typical for masters. We get life started, we do other things, and then we find our way back to the sport later on. Um, I found my way back to the sport in Portland, Oregon. I was a soccer player at the time, and I was recovering from an ACL tear in my knee, walking along the side of the river one day as, as part of a, a project I work outside for a living, and I saw a single sculling blade on the edge of the river and the collar was broken. And, you know, when you're a rower and you see one oar, you don't see a boat, you don't see an <laughs> athlete, you're alarmed. So I was able to get the oar, I was able to bring it back to my office and a sculling blade does fit in an elevator in case anybody's curious. <laughs> um, one of my colleagues was uh, attached to the one, one of the rowing programs um, in Portland, Oregon. And I said, I found this. And she said, bring it to the boathouse on Saturday morning. And so I, I did, I showed up and I, met the program director and I met the guy that would be my first stroke seat. He was an excellent coach. And, and, and that was it. That was it. It was just, I showed up and then they said, why don't you sit here and take the boat out for a spin? And I, I fell in love with it. So that's how I got into coxing. Um, and I've been doing it for about a decade now. So they put you right into the driver's seat, like <clears throat> cold Turkey, right? I, I said, Hey, look, I said, I, I used to row and I, I've never done any actual real coxing. And they went, ah, we're community rowing. We'll, we'll teach you. It's, it's great. And, and the guy that I had as my stroke seat, he was an excellent teacher, excellent, excellent teacher. So for, for a number of years, about six years, we developed a really great relationship. And anybody that knows coxes knows that when you have that stroke seat, you develop that relationship. Um, and the stronger that bond is, the better the boat works, because sometimes you don't even need to communicate verbally. You can just look at each other and understand what the boat needs. So, yes, absolutely. Great introduction. When I when I, I rode at Boston University and actually years ago in, in the mid 80s and late 80s was a member of Riverside Boat Club as well. And, you know, having that relationship between I was usually the stroke seat. So having that relationship with the coxswain in the boat that you can communicate what's going on just makes such a tremendous difference. And what is it like coxing masters? Uh, it's a, it, it can be a little intimidating and that depends on the, I would say the age of the coxswain. We presently have a couple of younger coxswains, some that are just right out of school. Um, I'm the oldest one. I'm, I'm double their age right now. I'm, I'm 48. Um, so if you're going to be in a boat with uh, 48 year olds, 50 year olds, you're potentially coxing your parents. 
60 and 70 year olds, because we have grand and veteran masters, um, mm -hmm. those are potentially your grandparents. And that could be really, really intimidating. So I would say for younger coxswains, if you're going to get in a boat with masters, just, just be confident and own the fact that you own that seat. You know, they will listen to you. And the ones that don't, I would say go to your coach and have a conversation because that's mm -hmm. being disrespectful to the to the coxswain, right? If you're the coxswain, you're in charge of the boat, you're in charge of the athletes, and that's how the relationship should be. Um, for me, when I substitute coxswain other boats because of my age, there's kind of that respect that's already granted initially. You have to earn the rest of it, but they, they kind of give you that little bit of leeway because oh, she's 48. She's kind of our age. Let's see how this goes. It's not like a, you have to prove yourself when you sit in the seat and see if you can go straight and tell us what to do and that kind of thing. So I would say for the younger sect, own it, be confident. You know, it, it is intimidating. Just understand that, but you know, get your job done and, and they will give you respect. Well, I think I would assume that in a team boat with, with masters, they also would really appreciate a coxswain being well organized and being very clear. So if they own the seat and they they take charge, I would imagine that you know the, the crew is going to appreciate that because the, the boat's going to work better, the practice is going to run better. Um, you know, they they appreciate somebody knowing what they're doing. And you know, they they can't row without the coxswain. <laughs> so. and, and they appreciate it's not them. Right. A lot of a lot of pro, a lot of programs will have just they rotate rowers through and they're like, I don't want to do this. This is terrible for somebody that's going to be permanently in that seat. You know, uh, the advantage that we have is that that's our seat. We don't have to switch or anything. So people are like, thank goodness you're here. I'm going to give you that respect because you you should know what you're doing kind of a thing. So tell us one funny story about coxing. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. Um so uh, as part of my job, um, if there's not enough of us at races, you get passed around to different teams as a substitute. Hey, we can't race unless we have a coxswain. So oftentimes at regattas, especially when I was out in Oregon at, at uh, regionals, I would, I would bounce from boat to boat to boat. And there was a day where my boat crossed the finish line and we rode to the, rode to the finish. It was a wet exit, so I had to jump out of the boat perhaps maybe misjudge the depth of the water and I'm 5'3". Oh, no. So I got in up to here. So I'm already wet, swam to shore. Guys took care of the boat, ran across a hot parking lot to the, to the launch dock, got in the boat, shoved off, maybe wasn't quite balanced enough on the gunnels and went head over tea kettles into the lake, oh, got no. back in, into that eight, rode around to the start. We're doing some warmups and things. And then four and five seat decided they didn't want to, they didn't want to row on those sides. So they were going to, going to walk and switch and masters, you know, we're reasonably athletic, but we're not 21 anymore. And so four seat, you know, just did the whole like stand up and, you know, kind of let five seat go through and somebody did something in the boat and the boat shifted and four seat went for a swim in the drink. Oh no. Had to pull them out, got up to the starting line, you know, and there's, there's a couple of us that are kind of wet and like the, the, the referees are like, did you, did you guys have a pool party? What's is going on? All, is everything all right? <laughs> Something. Yeah, exactly. So I, I would say that um, I, I've done a lot of swimming unintentionally as a coxswain. Sometimes the boats, you know, I've been in a situation where the boat has swamped and has flipped over backing into the stake boat in front of everyone. I mean, oh, these that's things wonderful. <laughs> yes. I, I, I have a reputation in Canada um, up in Burnaby on Burnaby Lake that I was one of the people that backed into the stake boat and 
We flipped over, we went for a swim, and the geese came over to investigate because the geese are super curious on that lake. Um, we eventually I, did race, but yeah, you know, I've, I've done my fair share of swimming. So that, that must be that must be the Cascadia regatta. And but there are weeds, there are weeds at Burnaby. So, you know, that that can that can get people into trouble sometimes if yes. they have too many weeds on the course. Now, yes. now you're you're rowing on the Charles. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a for, for people who are not familiar with um, everyday training in Boston, you know, there there is a lot of a lot of traffic. Um, on the river on a, on a daily basis. And, yes. you know, you have to, you have to steer, you have to follow traffic pattern. There are eight singles, big boats. Um, can you, can you give our listeners one example of a serious incident that happened that helped you sort of learn some lessons about, okay, this is what I should do or shouldn't do, or things that, that, People may not, or, or people in boats may not always understand, like, this is where you need to be careful. These are the types of things that can happen if you don't obey the traffic pattern, or if you don't go through the right arch, or if you don't have the right etiquette, you know, because yes. things do happen on the water. They, they do. Um, and, it, and it's unfortunate. Um, the traffic pattern is pretty well understood here in the Charles, and it does shift between spring, summer, and then fall season. Um, the most dangerous corner on the river is at Elliott Bridge, coming off the big curve, run, rowing upstream, and then going under Elliott Bridge. And the reason why is that the turn coming downstream is quite sharp. And so if there are boats coming downstream and they don't stay close to shore, they will veer out into the middle of the river. Now, if you're doing pieces for Head of the Charles and you want to cut that line close in, there's no buoys to separate downstream traffic from upstream traffic. And if there's two boats coming downstream, because that does happen on occasion, it's a little bit of a blind corner. So if you're going into the corner at race pace, um, it could be pretty dangerous. And, and I've had instances where we've gotten really close to some rival clubs on the river, um, where they were perhaps maybe a little further out from shore than what they needed to be. And I was a little closer into the line because I was trying to practice my line. We didn't have a head-on collision, but you know, we traded paint and wow. going in opposite and going in opposite directions. You know, it's it's jarring, especially for the people, you know, uh, on your on your port side. It's it's you know, hey, we're gonna have a collision, get on the rudder, the boat leans, you know, and it can end not well. It can end not well for sure. So Pay attention. Pay attention. Absolutely. Let's take a Brief message from our sponsor, from Rebecca. Our sponsor this week is the Rowing Through Menopause webinar. This is a series of three separate webinars that we are hosting over the next <coughs> short period. And we are going to be talking firstly about how the physical aspects of menopause can affect your rowing. Secondly, about how you can adjust your training so that you can compensate for the physical effects. And thirdly, about the strength training that you need to do in order to keep your bone density and to stay healthy as your body goes through the change. It's three consecutive weeks, Thursdays <clears throat> at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can sign up for a free ticket. Go to eventbrite.com and search for Rowing 
through menopause. Now back to the show. So Kim, what would be your advice to anyone who is thinking about coxing masters? You know, I, it, it, again, it's, I would say it's program specific. Some programs are a little more competitive than others. Um, for community-based type programs for general sweeps, I would say um, take a little bit more of a fun and supportive approach. Um, I wouldn't say rah-rah, but you don't have to necessarily get after your crew with a big stick if they're not technically accurate. Be more encouraging. If you're in a more competitive mindset type boat, then you can bring the stick and be have higher expectations. And if they're not meeting those expectations, let your crew know. But I wouldn't say, come on, guys, we can do this. It's like, listen, catch placement is not happening. Timing is not happening. Take these five strokes. Let's get them in on time. So I would say that the intonation that you would utilize between like a general sweeps program versus a highly competitive program is really going to be determinative in how you speak to those folks. Um, word choice is also um, something that you will develop. All coxswains will, will have their own vocabulary, their own thesaurus and, and different um, words they will use. And for me, that's the same thing. So I will have a different set of words that I will use um, with my adopted team. And I, I see one or two of them are online um, from Three Rivers Rowing Club, go Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yes. So that's a, different, that's a different lexicon versus what my guys, I use with my guys at Riverside versus what I've used with uh, the competitive women's program at CRI here in Boston. So again, word choice and intonation. So general sweeps again, maybe a little more encouraging, a little less with the stick, still let them know the expectations, but if they're not meeting expectations, I wouldn't get right on them. Give them, give them another try. Um, try to explain that technical or that technique that you're aiming for um, in a different manner. And, and all of that will come with time and with meters. I've been doing this for a decade, so I have that experience. I've coxed in England. I've coxed for a bunch of different coaches. And when you hear the input and the words and the intonation that they use, you can fold that into your coxing. And that just makes you um, a little bit more of a holistic um, addition to the club or the boat that you're sitting in. Absolutely. I've had some, some feedback from some of the men in your Riverside aid. I, I know a couple of them very well, and they actually recommended that we get Kim on the podcast because she knows what she's doing in the coxswain <clears throat> seat. And one of, you know, one of the comments, um, is that, you know, Nothing slips by. And this is a, is a competitive men's master's eight. Like they train very seriously for the head of the Charles. So, yes, you know, they, you know, they want to, they want to get faster in order to get faster. They, they, they like you to be demanding. That's my <laughs> understanding of the feedback from them, but they'll be like, you know, nothing gets by her. You know, she's, she's on a, she's very encouraging, but demanding. And I think that's, that's very important because if you want to go fast, You've, you've got to work on things, you know, a hundred percent. Yes. And now how do you, how do you organize your group? Do you have just one, like in the men's program, do you have one eight that you cox? Do you do cox eights and fours? Do you row different boats, different, <clears throat> different sessions? We have different boats. So it depends on how many people are signing up for practice. That will be, that will dictate um, the size and number of boats that we put out. Um, typically if we're going to put out an eight and a four, we try to make the four faster so that the four can stay with the eight. So we manage traffic that way so that we're not having to chase boats all over the basin and up and down the river. 
when I was coxing at my program in Oregon, um, we had multiple eights that went out. And so it was either, uh, there was a day of the week that was the first eight and then the JV eight and then the novice eight. And so they dedicated that. So the, the, the most competitive and the most technically proficient guys could spend a day rowing together and get faster. Um, the nature of that program was community rowing. So to develop everyone. So the other two days of the week, they would blend in those intermediate novices so that they can row with the better rowers and they themselves get better with their technique. Um, here at Riverside, it's, it's a little bit of the same, but the team is much, much smaller than my team in Oregon. So again, um, we don't technically have like a first eight and a second eight because the team isn't that big. Um, in terms of boats, I'm a specialist in an eight. Mm -hmm. I love eights. They're fast. They're noisy. It gives me much more options. Um, I'm not that great in a four. Um, and those of you that are coxswains out there will understand that if you're sitting in a bow loader, the coxing experience is much, much different. The boat feels much, much different. And it's a completely different set of skills. Um, a very good friend of mine who's coming hopefully this summer, uh, she's a specialist in a four and not so much a specialist in an eight. And so we've had this discussion of like, what differentiates you between boat class, you know? And again, it's that mm -hmm. boat feel, it's that experience. And it's, and it's what we like to do. You know, she likes fours. It's a much more intimate experience. It's more finesse. The eights are a dump truck. They're just dudes just pulling hard <laughs> and going fast and let's go. Um, and I like that kind of thing. Big, noisy, just let's go. So, and again, you know, it's just based on signups really early season. We might get an eight out, but it'll probably be fours. And that sort of thing, just to accommodate the number of, of people and number of seats that we need to put out. When it gets to be high summer, the numbers inflate a little bit. When it gets to be head season, it's insane. It's like I'm looking around for stuff that floats at that point. So, right, that's what that's when everybody's getting excited. Now, when yes. you have a new crew, <laughs> and obviously masters, masters men, masters women, but let's talk about masters men can have very different levels of mobility and flexibility. Yes. And movement patterns. Yes. What do you focus on first? Let's say say you have a, a boat and like how are you gonna get how are you gonna get these guys rowing together first of all? Because they may have very different ways of sitting on the seat, very different ways of setting their body angle. You know, you've got to get them all together somehow. So what what is your go-to? What is your go-to drill? Pause drills will really work well for that sort of thing. Um, if I'm jumping into a boat and what I've done is substituting into boats that are like rowing up to the start. So if you know you've got maybe a thousand meters, 1500 meters, that first 500, let them row together so that you can feel the boat, kind of see what everybody's doing individually. And you make mental notes. Is bow seat, are they, are they late? Are they early? Is somebody, is there a lot of backsplash? Are you washing out? Is somebody leaning outside the gunnels? Are they having an extended layback? Are they over committing coming into the catch? Everybody's going to bring their own little technical deficiency. You can't really fix that if you've just jumped into a boat. So try to get them to row together as a boat. So the first 500 meters, you're kind of observing this sort of thing. If I want to throw in a pause drill to kind of get that timing together, um, that is that is kind of my one of my go-to things. And the other thing, and my guys will say this, is we do a lot of rowing eyes closed. Like, I don't care what you look like. If you and your technical deficiency makes the boat go fast, that's what we need. And, and I've heard this from many gold medal winning Olympians. Everybody's got a little flaw, but all those flaws coming together makes the boat go fast. That's the only thing we really care about. It may be ugly. doesn't matter. You cross the line first. That's the only thing that matters. So just get them to row together. 
pause drills is a good thing. Eyes closed is a good thing just that they feel the boat and they're not trying to row individually. Just get them to relax and just go with the push, go with the flow. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on that, you know, every crew has its idiosyncrasies. Every oarsman has its, has their idiosyncrasies. And it, it doesn't mean that you can't make the boat go fast that way. You have to, you, like Jürgen Grobler used to say, you know, you, you, you need to coach the boat the way that boat needs to be coached to go fast. And you, you can't always stick to a, you know, a model. Um, we all know what the basics are that we need to cover, but I think that's a very good point of, you know, help, help them live with their idiosyncrasies, correct what you can correct, but, you know, go for the overall package deal, right? Betty Whites, those are my, those are my friends from Pittsburgh, for sure. Oh, my badass excellent, Betty Whites. excellent. I have been in some very ugly, te technically ugly boats. And we, I mean, by open water, we've won races. So there's, there's medals on my wall from those yeah. races. So it works. It works. Doesn't matter if it's ugly. If the boat I think flows we've all, and goes. Yeah. <laughs> we've all rode ugly races. Like this. Yes. <laughs> and this is As fine. Masters. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. As masters, we're also often immobile. So Marlene and I have a, um, a, a message we repeat often, which is adaptations are needed for rowing masters. Much as we'd like to row really beautifully like the Australian Olympic team or Harry Mons crews, we can't always actually physically get into those positions. Ibuprofen and ad adaptation, I think, would sum up <laughs> yeah. masters rowing very, very well. That's for your sure. t-shirt slogan. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And, and right, and feel, you know, boat feel, and, uh, you know, I was talking to someone recently, and Rebecca and I talk about this a lot, and, and the, the feedback from the coach was, try not to think so much, and try to feel, you know, try to feel, and try, to, and, you know, and aid is a big, big animal to, to blend together, you know, loads of fun when you're in a good one, questionable when you're in a not so good one, <laughs> but still loads of, loads of fun, but, um, Thank you so much, Kim. I think this was a delight and maybe we can catch up with you as we get closer to the head of the Charles. I wave, the high. Of the Charles. <laughs> wave high. I will be at Riverside or on the river somewhere. I'm, I'm around. So um, thanks very much for having me. It's been great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. We are part of the Rowing Chat Podcast Network. Please tell your rowing friends about the show. And if you've learned just one helpful thing from today's episode, please consider supporting the show for as little as $1 per month by visiting FasterMastersRowing.com forward slash podcast.